This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Good evening and welcome to a new episode of Tabletop Genesis. I am Mike Lord. This is Ellie. Good morning, everyone. This is Simon. Good evening, everyone. Hello there. It's Stacy. And this is Tom saying good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> again, we've got all your time zones covered here. So uh, thank you for listening again. Today, we're going to dive into the first of Steve Hackett's solo albums called Voyage of the Acolyte. And this is actually the first of all Genesis solo albums uh, because it was. <laughs> it was released in 1975. How long did it take between the Voyage of the Acolyte to the very last solo album by a Genesis member? Oof. Well, 75 to... I mean, Ray Wilson is putting an album out now, mm-hmm. so it's now... 31 years of span of solo albums. Tony's last classical album was God, probably five years ago now. Yeah, it was recent, but not Yeah, recent. four or five years ago now. Phil's had going back in 2010. And um, mm-hmm. Peter Gabriel had, well, let's go back to the 20th century. Yeah. Oh, no, actually it was the early 21st century with, uh, with us coming out. So, you know, there's, they're all going strong in their own ways. But let's face it, this was the one that started the ball rolling. Indeed. So let's get over to Mr. Wikipedia, Simon, and summarize this up for us. Certainly. uh, Voyage of the Acolyte is the debut solo album by English progressive rock artist Steve Hackett. It was released while he was still a member of Genesis. The album was recorded two weeks after the last show of The Land Lies Down on Broadway tour. I didn't realize that. And was released in 1975 on Chrysalis Records in the USA and Charisma Records for the rest of the world. It featured heavily contributions from Genesis bandmates Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford. In an interview with Phoenix FM, Hackett stated that some of the tracks, particularly Shadow of the Hierophant, were rehearsed by Genesis during the writing and recording of Foxtrot in 1972. The album went silver in the UK. In 1987, MTV interviewed Genesis keyboard player Tony Banks, who stated that the album didn't do much for Genesis. However, it is considered by many Genesis fans to be a lost Genesis album. The tracks were named after or with reference to the minor and major trumps of the tarot card deck. The album was reissued in 2005 by Virgin Records in the US and in 2006 by Astral Works, featuring bonus tracks. I was able to reach out to Mr. Hackett himself just recently to ask if he had any words to say about this album. And uh, he was able to, while busy on tour in Japan, again, because he is the hardest working man in Prague, Mm -hmm. uh, he was able to write back just a brief note here about Voyage saying, Voyage of the Acolyte recording was all done at night, but the process was joyful. Each song seemed to get better than the last, and it was a great team of musicians and singers with with John Atok at the helm, engineering and steering us through galaxies of magic appearing in the timeless void. 
The first track recorded was Hands of the Priestess. It was wonderful to hear Brother John come of age as a flute-playing virtuoso flautist. I still feel close to the album and perform many of the songs live. They still produce an extraordinary reaction from the fans. Very best, Steve Hackett. So... Thanks, Mr. H. That's That's so nice to hear he has, you know, he still has love feelings for this album. Because sometimes you talk to musicians or any artists and you, you know, you ask them about maybe an earlier work and they're like, oh, you know, like I've moved on from that. Or, you know, oh, I was so young and naive or didn't care. But he, you know, he's really proud of it. And and he should be. I mean, it's still, you know, something I listen to. You know, it's it's in my rotation um, pretty much in terms of, you know, especially with solo albums. Um, so that's really not, that's good to hear that he was, he's still, you know, connected with connected it. With yeah. it. Yeah. It's a great way to put it. Now, where did you all hear this in kind of your, your Hackett listening experience? Well, for me, I, if you can write back to him, tell him, I'm sorry, I didn't get in, into this album sooner. <laughs> I had, I bought this probably in my Genesis and solo member collecting phase in like the mid 90s or early 2000s and I bought it and I'm sure I listened to it once or twice and I think I put it aside and just re-listening to it in preparation for this podcast I'm like this is some really good stuff I Mm -hmm. wish someone had just told me you know go back and listen to that revisit it because there's stuff that is great on here that you've been missing all this time so I'm I'm glad I finally put the time into it in my case too I bought it I think in the sometime in during the 90s Obviously not at the time because I was in 1975. Let's say I was three years old. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that would have been very precocious album. listening oh, for a three-year-old. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I I got this in my like Tom in my I got to get my hands on anything Genesis related phase, which was in the mid 90s to early 2000s, and like Tom, I you know I listened to it, but. It wasn't something I listened to over and over again because I was still in my, I was still getting to really know the Genesis catalog, you know, um, the solo stuff I did acquire. And I, you know, I could say the same thing about Curious Feeling, Small Mm -hmm. Creeps Day, um, and some of the, even the later works from Steve. I mean, Steve has a ginormous catalog. Mm -hmm, I mean, he's, he's a machine and and a wonderful machine and he, he should, you know, he, he's got that creative ability to just, you know, he's not putting out stuff just, just to put out stuff. I mean, he, he truly has a genuine, uh, creative streak in him. Um, but there's a lot to keep up with (laughs) and, you know, especially, you know, being a a teenager, I didn't have a lot of money. So, um, I had to kind of pace myself, um, in acquiring all this material. So, yeah, you know, I got it at that at that time when I, you know, Genesis was still new, exciting, and fresh. You know, yeah. you know, early in the relationship, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, I loved it. I mean, immediate um, love feelings for it because it's mostly instrumental. Right. Um, and I remember just really being struck by how different this sounded. Mm. You know, the instrumentation, the arrangements was very. I mean, you could hear okay, that bit could have been in Genesis or, you know, that oh, rem- reminds me of something they did in Trick or Foxtrot or Lamb or whatever. But overall, I mean, mm-hmm. this was Steve Hackett. <laughs> it's, it's very different. Yeah, it's very, sure. very different. Um, and he, you know, I think more so than any of the other artists in Genesis found and established his voice and style the quickest and mm-hmm. most immediate. And it, you know, kind of carries throughout his career. Or I think of like, Gabriel Collins, Banks Rutherford, they've kind of 
took them a little while to find their voice. You know, we were talking about with Peter Gabriel three, like that was the album, like his third album is where Gabriel kind of really put the stake in the ground. And that mm-hmm. was the start of the sound that we all know today. Uh, they carry through. But when I hear Voyage of the Acolyte, that's it. This is, he's off and running. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's, this, he's where he really, you know, the first album, he's already established his, his voice and style. It's pretty amazing. Most Genesis fans um, probably would, uh, would be able to share a similar story about how they discovered Voyage. For me, it may be the only difference is that I had worked my way through the entire back catalogue mm-hmm. of Genesis, and I was looking for something in that style. I'd ploughed my way through all of the S albums mm-hmm. and all of the Pink Floyd albums, and then some friend of mine who obviously knew a little bit more about this than I did said, you do realise that um, Steve Hackett released a solo album? And I said... Did he? <laughs> and uh, yeah, he did from around about that era. And it was like being having a drink after being thirsty for a long, <laughs> long time. And I just went, yes, <laughs> this, this music. And I kept pointing to it, you know, to other fans going, this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would agree. There is a case to be made that this is the, the Lost Genesis album. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure I would say that that's the case now, but back in the day, I was banging on the table going, yes, this is the Genesis album they never made. <laughs> and and I think that's really only because I was looking to wring the last drops out of that era because right. I'd heard everything, you know. And um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful album. Yeah. It's um, It's got plenty of... You know what would you call it? Zip, get up and go. Mm-hmm. Cane and yeah. Pepper. It's uh, you know it, it spring. And what this is one of the things which I love about this album. It springs right out of the gate. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think that for me, my my introduction to this was probably around the GTR era, mid eighties, mm-hmm. because I think when being a Yes fan and a Genesis fan, and then it's like, oh, here's a band with Steve, the two Steves in it. It was like, oh. I should find some of this guy's solo material because being a completist, that's, that's what you do. And I think that the most recent thing that he had put out as a solo artist was Till We Have Faces from 1984, an album that many Steve fans do not like. Maybe because it was the first one I got, I still like it. I think there's decent material on there. Uh, and if it wasn't the second album I got of his, it was probably pretty shortly after that, to the point where I still had to find it on vinyl somewhere, Voyage of the Acolyte. And I found it, and I and I was like, oh, this is different. There's not really, there's a couple vocal things, but not really vocals. And compared to Stacy, I was still looking more for vocal tracks. But I could tell that there was a lot going on in this music that was like, oh, this is this is really good. I think that once I found it on CD, probably as an import in the during my college years at some point, that's when it became easier to listen to this, just because it was more accessible than I didn't probably didn't have a turntable in a uh, in college. So, you know, that was my introduction to this, and I've I've listened to this again. It's been a steady kind of player in the rotation since then. So. It's again. I think with, I agree with someone. I I don't know if I would call it the Lost Genesis album, but there's definitely things in this that I can hear that say, "Oh yeah, this this fits that family." I think at the at the time, as Simon said, you you probably heard it as a Genesis offshoot. It's got Phil. It's got Mike in it. Right. Uh, but in the hindsight of when I picked it up and knowing all of Steve's solo work and yeah. and the kind of sound that he brings to his own uh, music. 
it doesn't seem like Genesis at all to me. Like right. this is mm-hmm. this goes in a completely different direction, which I still love. But it's mm-hmm. like if you could say if you could listen to Genesis and Steve Hackett, you're like, okay, wait, I can separate the two worlds. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, I wouldn't agree that this is the lost album in hindsight, but. At the time, it probably did seem like yeah. that. It doesn't even necessarily sound a lot like his future solo material either. No, it's that's it's true. very unique within his catalog, also. I don't know. I I see I see a, I don't know. Maybe I, I just see a I see a stronger connection between oh, this sure. and Please Don't Touch. Sure. Um, maybe yeah. Obviously, as he gets further yeah. out, but he does have a very unique sound. There's a quality. That guitar to style it. has been yeah, absolutely has been constant throughout. Absolutely, yeah. it, like Tony Banks' chords. Like you can hear sure. you can hear a song and you don't know it's Genesis, but you, you know oh that's a Tony Banks chord. Right. I can do that with Phil's drumming, right. and now you could do that with um, Steve Hackett's guitar sound. Yeah. Yeah, I agree in the sense that I don't think it was the the lost Genesis album, or it could have been Genesis. This is Steve's music, you know, his his sound. He has his freedom to do whatever he wants. You know, he's the captain of his own ship, as he said. So it's yeah. It's, when did you first hear it? Um, sometime in the mid nineties. He played in Buenos Aires in nineteen ninety three. And I think around that time, I, I bought the album to, you know, prepare for the concert and stuff. So I, and I, I mean, yeah, it took me a while because it's, it's not, it was the 90s. So mm-hmm. this music from the 70s, very, you know, oh, I want to listen to music from the 70s. So I am going to choose. So this is timeless. <laughs> it's right. Awesome. right. And it's deceptive, like, uh, I say this so many times on the podcast, it's deceptively complex. Mm-hmm. So every time, it's, and in, in the case of this album, that means every time I hear it, I listen to it, I hear something different, or I hear something new I hadn't noticed before. Like today, we were listening to it before we, before you guys came, and I was like, I just, it really struck me how many, um, you know, areas where there's that theme, repeat, the theme yes. repeats. So like Ace of Wands is actually throughout the album, yes. things yeah. like that. Yes. And that just was like, I know I've heard that before, but like, I finally like acknowledged it, I guess. The melody clicks in a way that yeah. you're like, oh, he's reusing that a little bit. And it's a little flavors it's almost, of that throughout the and album. And it reflects the orchestration of yeah. the band. And, you know, the, it just, yeah, it follows more of an orchestral style than I think Genesis did. You know, the, Genesis, you know, kind of, you know, in the seventies went more of a classical route too, but they never really did it in a thematic way that Hackett did. If there was a similarity um, that you could tie directly between Genesis and Steve Hackett's solo work, it's a sense of ambition for the music. They're both very, uh, you know, Steve with Genesis and on his own, has always been a very ambitious um, musician and a songwriter, has always wanted to, to go places where where he hasn't trod before, right. and I think Genesis are, are are and have been very much the same. So, mm-hmm. if there is any kind of similarity, I think that's the kind of common ground they share. Sure, well, excellent. I think that's a good intro to this album. So let's jump in with the first track, Ace of Wands. <laughs> Thank you. 
Ace of Wands is, you know, sometimes it's difficult to talk about instrumentals, but I think that, you know, we, as a first track, this kicks off the album with energy and with guitar extravaganza, orgasma, that just kind of says, oh, this was this is what this album is about. This is good to hear. Yeah, it's like certain. It goes into the chords and... Right. <laughs> and it's catchy as hell too. It's yeah. like that melody can go through my head all day once I start hearing it. One thing I love about uh, getting into the solo albums of the members is that it's almost like a Rosetta Stone for knowing what they did with the band. Like, because you'll have all these albums, and maybe the songs aren't credited to individuals, but they, you know, this is written by Genesis. This album is Genesis, and then you get the solo album. You're like, oh, this is what Steve is about. Let me go back now and listen to those albums. And then you can be like, okay, that's a Steve bit. That's a Steve bit. Right. So a song like this, you're like, okay, for a first introduction of Steve's solo work, it kind of like opens the door to knowing what he brought to Genesis. Right. And this is a kitchen sink of a track. You know, it feels <laughs> it's got everything thrown into there. This kind of, you know, from the very crazy introduction to the guitar melody to Mike's bass just being, you know, prominent in this track and filled playing incredibly well on this also i think it's you know this is the track where i'm like oh this is a version of genesis in full flight you know and that that works for me on many different levels if you had to if you had to break down this track you you the first thing you'd notice is that it's a lot there's a lot more instrumentation Mm -hmm. than genesis would have used there are whistles, there are bells, fireworks, right. you name it, loads of special effects, lots of lots of clever changes of pace, mm-hmm. lots of isolated sort of like flurries of notes followed by atmospheric bits, mm-hmm. which then flow back into... You can tell this was a sort of outpouring of, uh, of Steve's imagination after five years mm-hmm. of having to negotiate his way. Right. And I think negotiate his way quite happily through those first five years if you will both his early period and with genesis it's the sound of a musician unfettered right what i have studio time i have great musicians here i've got ideas what do we come up with and also there's not the kind of worry about oh i have to take this out on tour next week Mm -hmm. this is about you know doing an album for album's sake and he even says in interviews at the end of this, he's like, he didn't know that if he if he was going to have a collection of outtakes or if he'd have a finished album. He really, this was an experiment for him too to see if he could produce an album and that get this out. That sounds familiar. There. Like, yeah. yeah, we just talked about that with <laughs> Phil Collins on Face yeah. Value. Yeah, yeah. It was the same kind of uh, thing. Like, well, I wasn't sure I was going to do. A, he wasn't sure he was going to do a solo album, but it turned out to be one. And yeah. this, I think, is one of. I don't know. Um, I think it's one of Steve's most, uh, you know, revered uh, of his albums oh, from sure. fans. Right. So much like face value. So it's interesting uh, parallel there. I have in my mind's eye of him in those weeks on tour with Genesis for the Lamb, of him sitting somewhere in a hotel room or in a, you know, possibly a rehearsal studio or maybe even sort of like backstage before mm-hmm. they were about to go on. Just idly playing these on his on his Les Paul, warming up these little notes, these little, and just gradually stringing stuff together. Right. Um, possibly, and and this is just pure conjecture. Who knew what was going to happen? They all knew that Peter right. Gabriel was going. Mm-hmm. They had no real idea. They they obviously had lots of material sitting right. there, 
uh, maybe a surfeit of material, which I think much of this material, it, it, it was very obvious that there was a lot of ideas floating around right. at this point. And uh, not all of it could make it onto uh, mm-hmm. to Trick of the Tail. Right. And I just had this idea of, um, of, of Steve going, well, I'll book some time in the studio and see where this takes me. Right. It's funny. I, I had this perspective of, you know, that Steve did this album. And again, you know, now we're looking at things 40 years in the past. But Steve did this album because a lot of his material wasn't getting chosen for Genesis and moving forward with that in their albums. And I know, I think it's in chapter and verse where, where Tony kind of says like, you know, Mike was doing an album with Ann, Ann Phillips at the time that turned into decent. The ghost was being recorded at this point. Steve was doing this, this material. Phil was off doing brand X in the break before, you know, going back to Trinity the tale. And Tony was kind of like, am I the only one writing music for this band? You know, and, and, you know, and said that, oh, you know, there's material on that album we could have used for Genesis, you know, on on Acolyte. And so if Acolyte hadn't happened, who knows if Ace of Wands might have ended up being a, a Genesis track or a version of it or any of these tracks. You don't, this is, again, the alternate history of had Steve not recorded this album or recorded it just as demos, what, could some of this have been used on Trick of the Tale? I'm sure some of it would have been. What would have ended up being there? Who knows? So I always kind of suspected that the end of Dance on a Volcano was one of Steve's bits, that kind of that instrumental craziness that I don't know if he recorded it for this or didn't or wrote it specifically for Genesis, but I have the feeling that was something that, you know, was Steve's contribution to that song because it's very much in the in the vein of Ace of Wands, a crazy instrumental. Right. Well, having Phil and Mike play on this kind of might might have helped him a little bit in the band right because after steve exploring all these sounds and different you know special effects and and other uh whistles and bells and all that Mm -hmm. like phil and mike could say well this worked and so then when steve contributes some of the similar ideas to trick of the tail whatever he kind of would have mike and phil in his boat saying all right this did work on Steve's solo album, this we could do this here. Whereas if they didn't know anything he did solo, they'd be like, "Oh, that's not going to work." Yeah, even right. harder sell. Yeah, harder yeah. sell. Now that he's got, now he's got a couple of people at least in his team. Right. I think this instrumental. I love the second. I love the first half of it. You kind of get the main theme, then you get it kind of repeated, and then you're like, "Okay, where is this going?" It goes in this weird kind of choir, flute kind of, and then you get a very different part that has nothing in common with the first part of the track. And I'm like, "Oh, this is." You know, moves forward in a different way. I, I think it's, again, kitchen sink, but it works. The, the, the end section is the most Genesis-like of, okay. uh, in this song. It's that, that melody that's being played by the synth and that galloping bass yes. that, uh, that, uh, that, um, that Mike Rutherford does, uh, that great thing from sort of like the, the low note to the octave and back again. Um, that's a, uh, and, of course, I think it's Phil Collins playing drums on all yes. of the album. So you know, that that you know, he had Genesis's rhythm section. Yes, you know exactly. So it's fantastic stuff. If there was one one thing I would change about it is is the fade out kind of. I think you've mentioned on previous podcasts, Diamond, about how sometimes the fade out is a little bit of a cheat. Like you'd you'd rather have a real ending. I think this would have benefited from a real solid punch ending where it just kind of goes and just kind of fades out and fades out like that's the only part where like i want to hear more and it just kind of like leaves me hanging but 
everything else is great. Sure. And live, you get that when it kind of goes into that restatement of the very first theme and or however it ends with that. So I love the fact that it sounds as though um, a musical point has been made. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So we will now move on to Hands of the Priestess Part 1. I view this as almost again because it's the first version of this on on album is that you know steve and his brother john working with the flute and the guitar together it's the template for almost all their collaborations in the future you know not that it sounds like everything that they do but that it's guitar and flute working together and i think it's again in the rock world maybe you don't get too much of that maybe it's more of a classical thing but it it's kind of a very pretty melody. It's it's very nice. Very pretty, very classical. It's reminiscent to me of King Crimson a little bit. Sure. Uh, some stuff from... I Talk to the Wind. Oh, yeah, I Talk yeah, to the yeah, Wind, yeah. yes. Yeah. That's what it reminded me Which of. They were all heavily influenced by. Again, that's that's another version of rock, uh, rock flute and guitar together. So, yeah, I think this is, this is very nice. And of all the people who... This like Tony is the one known for soundtracks. Like this sure. strikes me as a soundtrack song. Like mm. this could I I could easily see this in a film, maybe a fantasy film or about fairies and goblins and. You don't even like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> right, I don't even like Lord of the Rings, but I could see this. Like the nymphs are looking around the trees, like very tim- yeah. timid. Sure. There's a it, it's a vo- it's evocative of visuals. Yes. yes. This is the uh, the first time we hear um, Steve's uh, magical, mystical side, yeah. which you know plays out through I think a lot of uh, his material over the years, and, you know where it is kind of like a dream world, um, fantasy, mm-hmm. Renaissance fair <laughs> kind of pastiche to it. Yeah. Um, and I was just saying earlier, it's, it reminds me a bit of Entangled. Like if you had some Tony Banks chords under this, it could have. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe, and then, so now, I, you know, that's what you were saying earlier, Tom, like when I heard this, I was like, okay, Entangled was a Steve Hackett song, yeah. you know, because I heard this, you know, on the album. It speaks to me about the uh, the level uh, of, of dexterity he has as a, as a songwriter. The, the previous track was all about top line, melody, strict, arra- quick arrangements, moving from texture to te- texture. This really is just like one feel, and it is that, it's an evocative feel. It, it takes you places. Yeah. And I think that was really one of the, uh, the things that all of the members of, uh, of Genesis um, were really after. I always remember that Phil Collins would, would be talking about um, 
uh, Sergeant Pepper's mm-hmm. and said, you know, when when you sit down to Sergeant Pepper, you put the uh, the needle into the groove, and you said, and that's where you go. You go off on a little journey. Right. And I think every single track uh, on this album, to some extent, is a little bit like that. It transports you. Yes, it gives you, it takes you on a trip, and I think that works wonderfully. Yeah, beautiful song indeed, and you know it's nice to you know see him from the early days working with his brother. As Mike said, you know, would set a template for future collaborations. I like that Simon. Did, we talked a little bit about soundtrack music. A friend of mine who's you know is familiar with Genesis because I played it for him. Uh, at one point, I think we were driving somewhere, and I had Hackett's solo album Guitar Noir on the CD, on the on the tape, or playing on in the car, and with one of the tracks on there, he said, you know, he should really write soundtrack music. Like he's like, there's, it's so atmospheric and so visual in some places. And it's just interesting that we all kind of come to that. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's something about some of the pieces that Hatchet writes that are very evocative visually. Yeah. I was going to say of all the, the members of Genesis, he's, his music is the one you can see. Yeah. Sure. In my opinion. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think we're all reflecting on that. Right now. <laughs> so. hmm. we're all stroking our beards yes exactly you know. <laughs> so well let's uh let's move on now to again a very different track a tower struck down tracks on this album this is the one that sounds the most like the lamb i like the fact that it starts right after uh, hands of the priestess part one i mean the previous song and i like that little few only few seconds it's like a suite almost yeah it fits together that way it's it's dark it's doom uh, anything that, I always say every prog at at some point in one of their instrumentals has to have German Nazi chanting in the background <laughs> and so this was that track for Steve and I was just I remember even hearing it the first time and I'm like it's such a cliche in some ways to have those type of sound effects in, in music but it does work in a lot of ways it's a cliche for a reason 
I like the cough. Is it the one that has yes. cough? Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of like Willow Farm in a way, where you know that's where Genesis got a little weird, um, and it, you know, kind of with different sound effects and stuff. And I, you know, and when we talk, when you guys talked to Steve. Um, on one of our previous episodes and Steve called out like how he really liked that part and he liked the sound effects of mm-hmm. it. I immediately thought, Oh, well now, you know, tower struck down makes a lot of sense. Cause he really, he took what they use in Willow farm, like really blew it out in this track. I don't wish to sort of make too many comparisons to other artists because, you know, Steve wrote this, this right. is uh, directly right. from him. Um, but one of the, the things that this reminds me of, and it's more the use of effects, the way that the effects cut in, as you were saying, um, Ellie, about the coughing, um, there's an album that was written by two artists called Godly and Cream called mm-hmm. Consequences, which was originally designed as... Um, uh, there is a point to this, so I will, uh, okay. I'll, I'll try and make this as briefly as I possibly can and get back to Steve, um, where they originally were using um, a, a device known as the Gizmo um, as a sort of like... It was a sound generation device which they attached to the guitar, and they, they put together an album to... To demo it, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of little effects thrown into it, almost like a, a sound collage, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of like Revolution Nine, sort mm-hmm. of like that kind of thing. And uh, I get the sense with um, with Steve, he, there's a lot of that there. There's a, a lot of sort of cut, sudden cutaways, if you will, and then going back to it. And it also has there's one refrain throughout all of this. One of the things he was very good at doing was being on the border of discordancy. Mm-hmm. And he, he did that incredibly well. He would do this thing where it was almost awful, but not, it was just, it was beautifully exactly put right. together, right. but yeah. just almost on the point of, of being uh, almost unlistenable. There's a lovely mi- a bit in the middle where it goes, uh, and I, I won't try and do it justice by, by humming it, but there's a, a guitar section, which is just like wobbly. Mm. This wobbly sort of like lead tone that he has, which again yeah. features features very heavily during uh, the lamb uh, and uh, and it's it's a it's just a classic case of sort of like it's a classic case of, of Steve Hackett pushing the envelope I think uh, at that point and uh, and this song is I think it's the darkest track on the album oh by far I, I even put it I said I hadn't listened to it a ton and I going back to this and, and I think it's coming back to me why I didn't give it its due listens back in the day was when I would get to this track, I was like, well, that's just Apocalypse and Nine Ace redone. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I don't really need to listen to the rest of the album if it's just going to be a rehash of Genesis stuff. And now I'm glad I did because even though the first part, it still makes me think of Apocalypse. Once I get past that, I love most of the non Nine Eighths parts. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that you were referring to that guitar part. It reminds me of the Pink Floyd on the run. Like, there's that part that built up, and I even. Said, is that are they singing saying Sieg Heil? Is there like like you <laughs> right. like I was like I can't that's not right, is it? <laughs> but it's just there's so much in it that I'm glad I stuck with it because after the part which I kind of I'm okay without, it gets into this really bizarre, twisty kind of waiting room, but a little bit more than that kind of piece. And it's definitely Steve and his music, as you say, like it's just you know borders on discordant. It's I always pictured kind of his thing is where like if genesis music was a mirror steve's music is if someone threw a rock at that mirror it has so many different shards where like you sort of see yourself but in so many different ways and different directions that's kind of what steve's music is compared to genesis's music 
I sometimes wonder if they, that man ever got a, a, a decent night's rest. You <laughs> kind of get the feel of a, of a man's brain ticking right. over constantly, oh, you know? Working on something, yeah. So. I think it's, you know, this is weird on the album and intense live when you would see it. So Because on the album, it's, it's very strange. It has, you know, the odd sound effects to it. And I think just seeing it live both, you know, on, on recent tours, not back in the day, but you know, hearing live versions of this, I was like, this was pretty, pretty out there live in a lot of ways too. So I think it's, you know, the music translated well from the studio to the stage at this point. Excellent, we'll jump into the brief reprise of Hands of the Priestess Part Two. This is, you know, the first kind of obvious bit of quoting from previously in the album in this part, where obviously it's part two, so you get the Hands of the Priestess melody, but towards the end you get a quote of one of the Ace of Wands melodies from the end part of that track. And once you start hearing those little bits that are quoted throughout this album, you can't miss them. You're like, oh yeah, there's that. And a lot of it is from Ace of Wands. There might be some things else. It's almost but... like Ace of Wands is its own overture, isn't yes. it? Yeah. So it's like you put it first so that you're familiar with it. Yeah. And then it gives some you something else to hang on when this, you know, rather Baroque, rather, you know, I, I wrote down the comment of ye old English, you know, <laughs> kind of in capital letters. It has a lot of that feel to it. And that's not a negative thing. That's more just an observation as a dopey American. Oh, yes, we all walk about looking wistful in a forest. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. Wearing green hats. And, exactly. You know... And saying, hey, nonny, nonny. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of music for The Hobbit. Yes. Yeah, we were saying elves and goblins. <laughs> I'll work with that. So I, I think this, again, as a reprise, you know, it's it doesn't necessarily add a huge amount to Hands of the Priestess Part 1 or anything like that. But I think it's it's a nice wrap-up of, you know, this suite of Priestess, Tower Struck Down, Priestess 2. Yeah. And you get to this and, and you hear the melody becomes like a triumphant, I don't know if musically it's a major, switches to a major key mm-hmm. or something. But you have that triumphant kind of melody, which is yeah. like, this is the end now of this suite of songs right. we're here we've arrived in the forest <laughs> and you think too if again you know there's so many parallels historically now that you can look at i'm talking about historically within genesis world because this is at the same time when when mike and aunt phillips were working on geese of the geese and the ghost which if you're familiar with that album is very english pastoral yeah. feel to it 
Which, again, Steve could enter that world pretty easily. I was going to say, when I heard this track, I was like, did Anthony Phillips accidentally leave this on Voyage of the Acolyte? And, like, did they swap something? There's yeah. no, it's no great coincidence that Steve was the guy that replaced Ant in that respect. Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, this is proof of it, especially if you've heard any of Ant's um, albums. And, yeah, that was one observation, you know, I was gonna make later on but i'll make it now um <laughs> it, the similarities between aunt and steve yeah. in their you know own work yeah. it's kind of un- it's really uncanny to think sure. about it but in it, places it, in places but you know what then it just it does make sense but well mm-hmm. the you know the the kind of acoustic baroque pastoral um you know area they go they both go into it, yeah. it's very similar and certainly you know com- in com- comparison to the rest of the members of genesis they're mm-hmm. more akin i think than any yeah. And I think Steve could go more dark than Ant Phillips usually does. Oh, go, yeah. Does. I think he's much more comfortable going into that loud guitar world than, you know, Ant has had. Ant really hasn't done that much in his solo Oh, yeah. World, Steve so. owns Surreal. Yes. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah. Excellent. Let's move on to the first of the vocal tracks on the album, The Hermit. Well, here we go with the first vocal that we hear from Steve on the album. Yeah. And the Genesis fan 
first experience hearing what Steve sounds like. Right, because he's never done backing vocals for Genesis or sang lead on anything with Genesis. Or so. spoke during a show with Genesis. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or sung backup during a show with yeah, Genesis. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think that for this song, and, you know, many people, you know, you know, there, there's... Steve's does not have a, a great voice, but I think that his vocal fits this song very very well i agree with that it fits his his voice i don't yeah. see this song sung by which are the other singers in this album steve uh, Phil and, uh, sally oldfield that is his steve's right. voice yeah. <laughs> yeah, here his singing is more like a uh, it's part of the music yeah it almost he kind of it just blends in yeah. with the melody um and the instrumentation around it so it's uh which it makes it very unique um yeah. And it's a style I had not heard or, you know, kind of encountered in, even though I was kind of new and took this kind of world of music, if you will, back then. But it, it just, it really, like, made me note, like, take notice of it because oh, I've yeah. never heard anything like this. And also, it's, the vocal is, is very far back in the mix. There's that's a lot need, of kind yeah. of echo and everything. It's, it's very forgiving. And I think that that's where, you know, he might have been finding his comfort zone as a singer. And also then, you know, you look at an album like Cured a couple of years down the road where he's singing all over that. And it's there's bits of it that are fine, but there's bits of it that really should be sung by somebody else. And, you know, it's I understand wanting to sing your own lyrics and wanting to sing your own songs. But sometimes to present them in a certain way, you want to have somebody, you know, somebody you know with with a better quality voice well you have so. to start somewhere don't you? right sure so but again you know bob dylan's made a career of, you know <laughs> getting but because he puts his own music out there and i think that's how i feel about steve's vocals now is that i think he's become a good singer because he knows what his vocal range is now i think on an album like cured it was more just like, oh, let's sing on everything, even the things that didn't really fit his vocal style. Mm-hmm. I think the Hermit fits his vocal style fine. <laughs> he followed it with the eeny weeny titsy polka dot from Keenan. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, and then, and this is, um, you know, we're really seeing. Okay, these are lyrics that Steve Hackett wrote. Yeah. These are a mouthful. I mean, these are a lot of big words. Um, between the Hermit, Star of Sirius, and Shadow of the Hero Plant. Um, Hierophant, is that how you say it? Yeah. Or hero plant. Hero plant? Like a hog weed. Hierophant. Hierophant? Yeah. yeah, I mean, attainment, enshrouded, um, nebulous, vessels. You know, there's a lot of big words here. Right. <laughs> you know, He's like, trying to push his SAT scores out. Yeah, I guess. This is an album that you kind of have to op- pop open a dictionary for. Mm-hmm. Right. But that, again, it, it goes down to the fact that, you know, he's a, a, an ambitious songwriter. Right. You know, he's not content to sit there and go, it's a sunny day, I yeah. want to find my way. He's not the guy that sort of like rhymes, you know, time with dime. You know, that's just yeah. not his right. way, you know. I, I did have to look up the lyrics because I sometimes can get some lyrics wrong. And, and I thought he was singing, and I obviously knew he wasn't singing this, but it sounds like a refuge from an Xbox. <laughs> Which I'm like, no, that's not it. It's actually well, we all need that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> a refuge from an exile. Oh, so a refuge found in exile. Oh, found in exile. Yeah, there we go. But yeah, I really like the song a lot. It's like the mood Steve creates, and I said he sings a song the way it's supposed to be sung, and he knew that he could sing this properly, but he let other people handle songs like Star of Sirius and Shadow of the Hierophant 
better than he could sing. So that mm-hmm. was it was good that everyone yeah. kind of. I mean, those three songs with vocals. He's got three good vocalists to yeah. sing each one perfectly. Definitely, and I think that there's there's cool guitar effects in the second verse of this track. You know, kind of adding it, adding little flourishes, little touches on here again, showing an eye for detail. So, I I enjoyed this more than I probably did the first time I heard it way back in the day when I was like, what is this? You know, but I think now that again you get more familiar with things over time, I'm like, oh, you know, I I enjoy this. There's also another thing back in the uh, 70s in the UK, there was a huge uh, upswing in folk bands. The Pentangles of this world, the uh, Fairport, Con- yeah, Griffin as Griffin. well, um, and you know Fairport Convention. Mm. All of these, you know, were 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 rediscovering British traditional folk music, right. um, and uh, and it was it was bubbling to the surface in all forms around about this time. You know, it was coming through in the works of Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. um, as you said, sort of like in the works of Griffin Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So. We'll now enter into the first lead vocal, well, not first lead vocal of Phil Collins, but first lead vocal of Phil Collins on this album with Star of Sirius.
this track. Um, I think this is probably the... I like this. This is the best constructed song on the album. Yeah. I think that the the intro guitar, the intro verse, I think Phil's voice sounds interesting on here. It's, you know, I still don't know if it was the quality of the recording studio, but it sounds a little distant, a little tinny almost with his voice. But it works for this song. It actually fits kind of nicely with that. Yeah, it, it also reminds me of uh, in places and referring to the to the previous track as well, where we were talking a little bit about folk influences. One of the other acts which uh, drew heavily upon that, and it reminds me very much of that, is Mike Oldfield as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of, uh, of of different instruments, and that's yeah. one of the things which I think sets mm-hmm. this album apart from the Genesis stuff is the sheer breadth of instrumentation. Right. And I think it's something that he actually mentioned um, mm-hmm. in the. Interview interview the fact that he really wanted to branch out and use other instruments i think it's you know there's lots of melodies on on this album that are played by other instruments other than guitar that i would bet were probably written on guitar when steve was pulling this together but then said oh i'd rather have kind of a cornet do that or an oboe do that melody yeah in the one of the the cd in the sleeve in the sleeve uh, of the cd it's um sort of you can see all the instrument that all the instruments that were used and one of them is the elka rhapsody and i was like what is that so i went online and i checked and it's this sort of uh, guitar synthesizer string synthesizer synthesizer whatever made in italy and anyway so he was using that among yeah. other instruments and mellotron and obviously all types of guitars right so it wasn't kind of it was a guitarist's album but he wasn't hogging everything for the guitar which i think is the skill of kind of being able to step back from your compositions and say what would be the best way of putting this putting this top line out there oh i'll have violins do it this time i'll have my brother's flute do it this other time i'll have my guitar do it this time and this track is a a great example of steve hackett the composer right and with this track you have what i've said before is you kind of go down this one path of music and then Steve will kind of shift direction and take you into a dissonant kind of world. Like he's got that nice acoustic beginning and Phil's singing mm-hmm. very, ah, you know, you've got that nice feeling. And all of a sudden then it goes into this, those European ambulance siren kind of sounding in the middle. Yeah. I think this is, uh, as Mike said, it's one of the most cohesive, you know, songs, you know, as a single you know track on the, on the album. Um, I like, as Tom said, the different transitions and pieces. I feel like I'm being tossed around in outer space when I listen to this because it's got that real ethereal or feel to it. Um, it's a ethereal is a good word for this album. Yeah, it's very uh, it's it's very trippy. I mean, Phil's vocals I think contribute to that to some extent as well. Um, and I made a note that this is one of the most underrated, like really true prog songs of the '70s. Yeah. I think if we, we took this song out and we did like a best of Prague of the 70s, this would totally hold up against some of the, the bigger, probably more, you know, like your Encore the Crimson King and Supper's Ready sure, and Heart of the Sunrise type thing. Like this could totally stand up. And it's, you know, it's kind of like the underdog um, or underrated track in this whole genre. And I could see a re-recording of this nowadays being something that could be popular, yeah. you know, in a different way, you know, with, you know, with, different recording techniques or whatever you know just kind of updating the song you know i'm not saying put a put a dance beat behind it or anything (laughs) but do something else with it 
because you know the chorus itself is extremely catchy. Oh, for this. this album is full of deep cuts, yeah, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. So, because again, there were no as you know somebody can correct me, but I don't think there were any singles released from this album. Nothing officially. I mean, maybe there were some tracks. Maybe Star of Sirius was played on the radio in some places, but you know, again, not that it made a dent anywhere. It was more of you know people bought this album because of the Genesis connection. That it was you know oh you know. We're finding out about, you know, Gabriel leaving. This comes out around that time. It gives people a taste of, oh, you know, what might the future hold? So I think this is this is a great song. I think that, you know, Phil's vocal really puts it in a class of its own on this album. I like Sally Oldfield. I like Steve singing, too. But I think that, you know, Sally Oldfield's is a bit more folky operatic almost. Mm-hmm. And that might not be to everyone's taste. I think it's okay for me, but it's not something that I gravitate to. Um, I think there's a lot of great instrumentation in here. I think the the vocal part is the at the end works well. You get quotes from Asa Wan. Is at the end of this again? There's always different different pieces to discover in this. Track. I agree with everybody else. Of course, <laughs> I love this song. I love Phil singing. Mm-hmm. Very shy. Very sweet. And, um, yeah, that's an interesting I, way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah a shy and sweet feel. Yeah. I mean, this was the first track that he sung uh, post Peter Gabriel leaving. Probably, unless when was there was a track on one of these Brand X albums, and I just don't know the timeline of it. That like he sang in Sanskrit on one of these, one of those yeah, albums. Yeah, I, I can't remember which, the name of the song, and I don't yeah. remember time wise when that was, but. You know, Phil was very game to up for anything, I think, at this stage. If somebody yeah. said, do you want to play Bondos on this? Go for it. Do you want to sing in Sanskrit on this track? Sure, why not? Like, like I think he was really looking for experiences. So, well, let's move on now with The Lovers. Princess Bride fans out there. Yes. It's a nice acoustic guitar piece, kind of like a sorbet, uh, kind of nice transition between Star of Sirius and Shadow of the Hierophant. Yeah, I, I view this as, you know, it's it's kind of this album's horizons. It's a nice guitar track. I think there's little bits of this 
that I feel like are were used elsewhere, kind of how bits of Ace of Wands keep cropping up in things. There's little just guitar phrases that I'm like, oh, that sounds like the bit of Hands of the Priestess that develops this way. Or, you know, there, there are little things here that, that work out. And then it kind of ends with the backwards guitarish sound. I think it's it's nice. It's also one of these tracks which, again, alludes to the fact that he was using the studio as much as an instrument mm-hmm. as it would be a recording device, right. you know, or an environment to record in. Backwards guitars, mm-hmm. sound effects. It's another example of him trying to push the boundaries a right. little bit. Just playing with sound a bit more than sometimes... You know, Genesis was fairly straightforward in that respect, using sound effects here and there, like on, you know, on uh, Supper's Ready or some other couple places in the Genesis canon, but not much. So, well, again, it comes round to what Tom was saying at the start of this, that you can use the solo albums as, as Rosetta Stones to see what percentage of the input was there and present for some of the, the right. group compositions. You can tell that this was recorded around about the time of The Land Lies Down. Sure. Steve was the one who came up with the idea in Afterglow on Wind and Wuthering to loop Phil's vocals at the end to, again, use the studio as an instrument, to use it as sound effects. So I think that's that's kind of what Steve was able to provide in Genesis, and that is provided in spades on this album, those kind of quirky little ideas that, you know, the song wouldn't necessarily be lesser without it, but it definitely adds a different flavor to it. And I think Steve's very good at that. You definitely also hear that in... The guitar solo in Ripples. Oh, sure. There is a, it almost sounds a little bit like this backwards, like halfway through this guitar effect that he's using, yet you're like, okay, that's all Steve. <laughs> right. It's good stuff there. So, well, we will now move on to the final track on the album, Shadow of the Hierophant.
This is the epic closer of the album, written by Steve and Mike Rutherford. And he talks about in the in the um, Premonitions box set that basically, and again, it might not be 100% on each side of this, that Steve wrote the song part at the front of it and Mike wrote the instrumental part at the back of it that was used back in the... I, the Foxtrot time period is when this first came about. And I thought I remember reading somewhere that they also kind of jammed on it during Selling England time period too, but I could be wrong about that. Well, I like the fact that you can definitely tell it's a Steve song and the freedom of him being able to do whatever he wants because Genesis never would have used an outside vocalist, especially right. a female vocalist at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Prague was a very masculine kind of, you know, as Phil says, men in trench coats, you know, listening to it. With, <laughs> right. And they bring in Sally Oldfield, who can sing these parts. And even as high as Phil could get, he I don't think Phil could no, even sing no. these songs. So it's nice that they have, like, it's very different when you get to this song. Right. Just because of the female vocalist. Yeah. Although when he did this live on his first solo tour, his bass player at the time could sing this. And did. And it was, yeah, at first I used to think it was a tape. And then I read the uh, read stuff about the shows that it was the bass player at the time whose name I am blanking, maybe Dick Cadbury, but I'm not sure. But it was somebody who, who toured with Steve in the early days and was able to sing this. And it was like, wow, he must have had a vice around his nuts at that point. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. and this is another one of the, those like, most probably one of the most overlooked fantastic prog songs from this time period um, along with star of serious um those two are just these the the end of this album is just phenomenal um and i i think the opening refrain Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite bits of the entire album it's Mm -hmm. uh that's something that gets uh, looped in my head a lot uh, when I hear this. Um, yeah, everything is gorgeous. I gotta be honest though, the the female vocalist it doesn't really do much for me. I think she's absolutely gorgeous voice. Right. Sally Oldfield is amazing talent, but I just personally yeah. have not been a fan of that kind of operatic, right. like soprano style singing. Um, but it does. It suits the song very well. It's still a gorgeous song, but I really start to lock in on this um, in, in the instrumental part. So the middle section to the end, it's just, yeah. Well, her voice is reminiscent of Annie Haslam from yeah. Renaissance yeah, a little sure. bit. And I don't, I don't think you're too much of a fan no, of that. No, I'm not a Renaissance <laughs> fan. I also thought about Kate Bush, maybe, like her voice in this song. That's uh, an interesting thought, yeah. yeah. In uh, an alternate world, maybe yeah. that would have happened, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm reminded of another album that came out around, I think after this, was uh, Chris Squire's Fish Out of Water that ends with a song called Safe that has about a you know eight to ten minute outro instrumental of a very repetitive kind of track that, you know, is restating things. And it's just, it has a similar feel to this. It's not a copy in any way, shape, or form, but... It just, to me, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, a way to end an album in the prod world. It's got that outro, which is very Bolero, mm-hmm. kind of like, and also She's So Heavy by the Beatles. Oh, yeah. When they go out with that repetitive, and it kind of builds and builds and builds. And it's got one of my favorite things. It's a little prog thing that I love, mm-hmm. is it's got those bells, you know, the hanging oh, yeah. bells, which yeah. like at the end of 
the apocalypse section yeah, sure, going sure. into the very end of Supper is Ready, those bells. Like, yeah. I love when those are used. And they're actually used earlier in a track on this album. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been... It's in Ace of Wands. Ace of Wands, yeah. right. And they bring it back to this song, and it's just like, it gives us that big power, important feeling like this yeah. is something good going on. Yeah. This this track is about, it's nearly 12 minutes long, but the 2005 remaster series actually has an extended playout which takes it out to 17 minutes. Yeah. yeah, because it was, and it was supposedly, I think, discovered in Steve's father's shed or something like that, <laughs> where there were some old tapes or something. So they had it available for the reissue. And I, I think, again, you know, if you like extended instrumental outros, the extended one is even better. Because it's just more craziness. And, you know, I don't know if it was cut down just because of time or because, you know, it wasn't enough space on the vinyl for it. But, you know, there's there's no drop in quality with the extended one. So I think this is great. I think that, you know, this, uh, Ace of Wands and Star of Sirius are kind of the bedrock of this album for me. Uh, those three tracks are really kind of the keystone for me with this work. I, th- I think it's a great way to end Steve's foray into the solo world. It's like he started this album, he started with an exclamation point, which mm-hmm. is kind of funny. Usually you would kind of build up to that, which was Genesis's uh, procedure of doing things. Like they would start very acoustic and end with the very loud, the knife mm-hmm. or whatever. Whereas here, Steve just came in, balls to the wall, exclamation mm-hmm. point to start with has some very nice stuff in between and then also ends it up with a great coda that goes up and it's mm-hmm. just like it's a it's it's a declarative statement at the beginning and the end of this mm-hmm. is what i am bringing to my world yeah well i think it's time for us to choose our own favorite track from the album shadow of the hierophant <laughs> <laughs> you want to read it would that be helpful my niece shadow <laughs> Take eight. My favorite track, I will go with the classic one of Ace of Wands. I love the kitchen sink. It was a tough choice. I ended up going down to Oh (laughs) (laughs) I still even now I can't pick one. I'm, I'm going to have to go with uh, Shadow of the Hierophant, too. Right. For me, it was down to Shadow of the Hierophant and Star of Sirius, but um, I'm going with Star of Sirius, just down to the vocal performance. Excellent. And I'm going to have to uh, agree with my wife here on this. Uh-huh. I think it's Star of Sirius. It's about time. The, I think it's the first time, isn't it? I think it's the first time we've picked the same track. No, 11th Earl Mar. Oh, yeah, we did 11th Earl Mar. Yeah, but I, I, th- I agree. I think it's the vocal performance by Phil that really sort of like nails my colours to that particular song. I love that song for the simple reason that it sounds... It sounds... Wonderful. <laughs> and if there's not a better reason to vote for, for a track than that, so... Can I change mine to Star of Sirius? <laughs> yeah. It's too late. That's too right. Late. That would almost be picking two strongs for your favorite. And and we just don't allow. That's not acceptable. No, no, that's unacceptable. Yes. So. Well, excellent. So, Tom, are you ready to show Steve your poll? I'm ready. Tom showed you his poll. All right. Well, the top pick uh, was Shadow of the Hierophant with 36%. All right. But close behind at 31% was Ace of Wands. Oh, I think that's the closest, like, 30% or so yeah. that we've seen in these polls. That was probably the closest first and second okay. vote. Third was Star of Sirius, All but right. that goes down to 15%. Okay. 
Uh, then you go down to 10 with Hands of the Priestess part. One. One. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a Tower Struck Down next with 6%. Okay. Uh, 1% Hands of the Priestess part. Two. Yes. Right. <laughs> and then the two last tracks with 0%, which The Hermit, I was actually surprised that no, yeah, no one picked that because I yeah. like that song. I somebody At least one. over Hands of the Priestess Part 2. Yeah. Exactly. Come on. Yeah. Whoever voted for Hands of the Priestess Part 2 needs to reach out to us. Yes. Yeah. Listen to The Hermit again. Yes. And The Wubbas with 0% <laughs> as, as the last track. That's what I predicted would get probably no votes not because it's bad in any respect but just because compared to any of the other tracks on the album is that going to be your favorite no because it is just kind of a break some track has to have the fewest votes Mm -hmm. and in that case there you go well now that we've talked about this album what do we all think of it any anything surprising anything that's come to light that you wanted to talk about that you weren't able to work in I'm glad that I was able to revisit it and give it a proper listen after having ignored it for so long, mm-hmm. because there are some, there is some great stuff on there which really shows Steve's contributions, not just to his the solo work but also to the Genesis and mm-hmm. and it, it just I got to give him real props for venturing out there first, testing the waters of any of the members of Genesis mm-hmm. and putting out this solo album, and for a first solo album for a member of a really big group at the time, I I think he pulled it off. It is so hard to look at this album outside of the context of where everybody was at in the Genesis world at this point, you know, post Gabriel leaving, you know, pre Phil starting to sing pre even working on trick of the tail. So it is, it is an independent album, but it also is so tied to its place in history. This is a great album, and he was, again, as we already said, that it's the first Genesis solo album. He was 25 years old, mm-hmm. and I think there are some a lot of gems here, Ace of Wands, Star of Stars, and Shadow of the Hierophant. They, those are amazing pieces for uh, such a young yeah. artist. I'm surprised that I still like this album after <laughs> all of these years. I think that's one of the... the the great features of this album that uh, I heard this album and I loved it <clears throat> many years later <laughs> yeah. um, there are very few records that still remain uh, that high in my estimations and uh, um, the whole team that recorded this album did a fantastic job and I think they're to be congratulated because it stood the test of time congratulations to you all at the time of this recording this is 41 years old yes this album thanks for that (laughs) yeah Um, I only have two things to add one is more an echo of what Simon said it is a timeless album and I remember the last time I saw Steve play live which was only a few months ago it was the 40th or you know the anniversary of this album so he brought out a lot of the material uh, from Boy the Accolade on stage and I just remember kind of getting a little emotional and feeling such a strong connection to that part of the set, more so than when he did the Genesis covers or anything else, because it reminded me of how exciting it was to hear this album at the time I did. Um, And, you know, that whole process of rediscovering um, new bits and uh, different, you know, getting, having a different perception of it every time I listen to it. It's still fresh. It's still a new listen every time I listen to it, which is fantastic. And that's what you want in any album you invest in. Um, And the only other thing I wanted to mention was this album was the first time Phil Collins 
played to a click track. Ah, there you go. (laughs) In his entire career. Yes. (laughs) So chalk that up for that. Well, we will now bid you adieu until the next time. This is Mike Lord signing off. This is Ellie signing off. This is Simon signing off. This is Stacy still wanting to hold on, but I will sign (laughs) off. (laughs) This is Tom signing off. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. Hello, this is Matt Stevens from The Fierce and the Dead, and you're listening to Progzilla Radio.